Hey, buddy. Welcome to another episode of Extra Bases with Bristol and Booth. Trying something a little different. Jeremy found this new platform and he said, we've got to do this. So now we're doing it. We are live on Twitter and pretty soon live on Facebook and some other places. So Jeremy, we are now 44 seconds in. Is it everything you thought it would be? Um, yeah, so far. And, and I didn't, I got to tell you, I didn't find it. One of our colleagues, Kim Davis, you know, uh, hit me to this thing and, and I asked her some questions about it, I looked it up and I just thought it'd be really cool. You know, a lot of stuff we do is, is, is live and a lot of stuff we do is, um, you know, is sometimes off, off the cuff on camera anyway. So why, why not just take it out and let's, let's see what we get. I'm trying to figure out how I can make you the main speaker on here. I'm okay with the main speaker. Huh? I'm good with you being the main speaker. You know, I'm just, I'm just following the Emmys. Ah, now I see it. Now I see it. All right, coming up on uh, this episode of Extra Bases, we're leading off with tales from the lockout, what Jeremy's been hearing behind the scenes with teams, and certainly it's not business as usual. Has the Hall of Fame become now the Hall of Very Good? The Brewers Ooh. have signed Jonathan. Wait, what? I like that. That was good. See, that's why you have the Emmys right there. That was yeah. good. <laughs> the Brewers have signed former Astro Jonathan Singleton, and we are doing a flashback. We are flashing back to a 2015 report on a pitcher who is now with the Baltimore Orioles. So, Jeremy... Like, it feels like there's a lockout going on, but yet, in some ways, it doesn't feel like one is going on because other than free agency and the Rule 5 draft, this is typically a slower time of the year. So what are you hearing from guys? Um, how are they dealing with the lockout and how are they approaching this new normal for the next month, two months, whatever, how long ever, how long it goes on from now? You know, the um, it depends on who you talk to with this. You know, the lockout is – Man, the lockout is something that can range anywhere from people thinking it's going to start on time, you know, to going into May. I mean, you've got you've got people who here on both sides, on, on both the union side uh, and on Major League Baseball, you know, the ownership side, uh, extremely dug in on, on where this is going to go. And, and you, know, you know, look, at the end of the day, um, the players have some real reasons to to be upset. They have some real reasons to want some change. They have some real reasons to, uh, you know, to, to have some, some integrity concerns or some things that have gone on at the highest level in the commissioner's office. And, and, you know, lots of times people take this stuff, they get real sensitive and they think, you know what? Um, that means that if, if there's something going on with, with the office or something going on with this person in the office, and that means that, that everybody's bad and that's not the case, but it does mean is that there are two sides here. And, the simplest way to define this from a fan perspective as to as to why the players don't trust the owners anymore hasn't any doesn't have anything to do with actual you know nickels and dimes and pennies right we're talking about an entertainment business and fair share of the entertainment dollar what we're also talking about though here is the baseballs and all you need to realize is the change in the baseballs without telling anybody and what could happen to the players uh, statistics future contracts what that does to players coming behind them uh, you know, and, and how that affects their day-to-day -day performance, even down to injury. So to do something like that without telling the players is, is pretty devious. And I think that that simple action should sum up to every fan why this is going the way that it is. Um, what I can tell you is that the players are dug in for sure. 
Uh, they've got enough money on their side to last. They they want substantive change. They don't want to be uh, have these have this game continue to be run the way it is, and they're going to do what they can to make a change. I do think devious is a great word because, man, to think that that would never come out in this day and age, I'm just shocked that they would do something like that. First of all, why wouldn't you talk to your partners, right? They always claim the players were partners in this. Right. And the fact that they would just go ahead and do that, devious is a really good word. I can't see any reason why you would change the baseball that we're using in games and not tell anybody you're doing it. I, I don't, I don't understand that. It doesn't resonate to me. Um, if I'm a pitcher, I'm concerned. I got to throw this thing. If I'm a hitter, I'm, I want to understand how the ball is going to fly. I mean, certainly in a, in a, in a day and age of uh, let's call it uh, numeric dominance with the analytics and the different ways of looking at things, you don't want to be in a situation where you that information isn't available. And I'm confident these guys had the information. So, you know, that's not necessarily an individual team thing. That's not a club thing. That's not a GM thing. This is a commissioner's office thing and an ownership thing. And, and there's going to have to be some changes with that. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, players are right to not trust these guys right now. They're absolutely correct. About three hours ago, the athletic Jason Stark tweeted out his proposal to fix the game in terms of tanking, mentioning, he has a proposal when it comes to the Major League Baseball draft, and he believes that perhaps incentivizing clubs to win, to actually try and do well, and then reward them with draft picks at the head of the draft, that's his plan, that basically reverse the draft order, and then you reward the teams on the bubble. So, for example, the Blue Jays would have the number one pick this past year because they just missed the playoffs. Right. Mariners, Athletics, Reds, Phillies, that would be your top five. That's a little too far for me. Um, I think you do reward the teams who are not good. I think you've got to do that to help clubs get better. And I just think this is a little bit overboard. Certainly, Jason Stark, amazing writer, his contributions to the game. But I think this is a little overboard, in my opinion. You know, if you're talking about um, the way it's supposed to work, with, with real competition, uh, real integrity for what's going on and how these teams are going to compete and try to win every year and build systems, everything that it's supposed to be about, if you're talking about doing things with that premise – then I agree with you. I think it's too far. I don't think you reward the rich by making them richer with the front of the draft. However, we're not in that age right now. We're in, we're in an age of, of people, of, of executives who sell a lot of things like a lot of watchwords like compete and process and culture and system, systemic and growth. And while all those things have, have very powerful connotation, they don't mean anything if you're just trying to punt 164 games a year at 162 to try to get the number one pick, right? That's just a cost-effective way to put, put money back in the ownership pockets uh, to before you have to turn around and invest. Now, look, are there ways to take a step back while then taking two steps forward? Yeah, and, and if you're a player and you don't quite understand the organizations are going to ebb and flow and there's going to be a, a, a taking a step back to go forward sometimes, you're not paying attention and you're not being reasonable. But it's absolutely reasonable to think that every team in every market should try to compete. 
It's absolutely, say it again, it's absolutely reasonable to think that every team in every market should try to compete every single year. So to walk away from that was what a lot of these guys are doing um, in lots of different ways without winning. I mean, and, we, and look, let, let's, let's go a step further. You've got guys that have been in places, you've got front offices or executives that have been in places now about two decades or maybe a little bit longer that have, haven't won a World Series. And they keep reinventing themselves and they keep throwing things out there like, process and culture and patience and and they keep spending billions of dollars in the wrong direction and they keep whiffing but they keep their job i don't know too many other industries too many other places where that would happen the only way that happens is because the owners are making more money than what they're putting out right so when it comes to uh to what jason stark is suggesting is it extreme yeah is it something that is probably not ideal in a perfect world? Yeah, but we are living in an imperfect world and in an even more imperfect situation when it comes to how a lot of these executives are approaching their seasons. Uh, and all I have to do, all I have to do with that is look at Tampa Bay and the Rays and how they compete and how they have uh, a different budget they operate on everybody else and they're in the playoffs. We're competing for a World Series every single year by drafting, by developing, by using analytics properly, by uh, growing the big league team, both with with now long-term contracts, right, with Franco and, and some establishments that they're doing there and also supplementing and realizing what market they're playing in. And these guys probably have, without just any disrespect to the Tampa market, they probably play, play in front of 11 people a night. And they're still doing it, right? So if they can do it, there's no reason why the Baltimore Orioles can't do it or the Milwaukee Brewers can't do it or some of these other clubs like even the big market clubs who – have won like the Mets have won 78 wins as, as an average for the last 10 years. How they're not doing it is beyond me. They can do all that. They don't need to just go out and buy the planet. They can reinvent themselves and have a more co cohesive system and units. So I absolutely think that what Jason Stark is doing, if, if we went that route, would force the owners who are tanking to fix that process. And it's a good idea. I think if you're going to fix a process that involves the calculations of which some of these GMs do. I think a better option would be to do what the NBA did, make a draft lottery. Because if you're at the mercy of some ping pong balls, then, then you can't say to yourself, well, if I finish here, then I've got a certain outcome, other than the fact that you'll have more ping pong balls. So I think if you're going to go and do something drastic, I would, I would rather see an NBA draft lottery type situation in baseball than a situation where the teams that just missed the playoffs, those are the ones who are at the head of the draft. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm with you. In a perfect world, I think what you're suggesting makes a lot more sense and, and is designed to restore competitive balance. The problem that we've got, and, and look, you know, some people might get some might get sensitive here with what I'm saying, but if you look at Cle Cleveland and, and with their track record of how they, look, they've competed and they've developed players and they've drafted well, um, but they haven't won. If you look at Texas, they've been all over the map. If you look at Baltimore, so you, you kind of got to keep looking through what these things are doing and, and, and try to decide uh, if that remedy, which is what's intended to be fair, is actually being fair. Or if you're just, you know, giving these guys who are tanking, who aren't treating the, uh, the game with the respect it deserves, uh, you know, more ammunition to do just that. Here's what I also like about this little platform. It has a clock. Right yeah, in the upper left-hand corner or right-hand corner, depending on how you're looking at it. All right, so we're 12 minutes in. The Hall of Fame. You have some guys who've had incredible careers, remarkable careers. 
And I don't want to disparage anyone who has now reached the pinnacle of this profession to be in the Hall of Fame. But some of these guys, I don't know. I, I question whether they are true Hall of Famers. And I don't know the best way of doing that without disparaging them. Because I can tell you there are guys, there is one guy that I can think of right off the bat that is not in the Hall of Fame that should be in the Hall of Fame. He's a Negro leaguer, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. But I look at some of the guys, especially a pitcher who won a lot of gold gloves, and I look at his stats, and I just, I don't know, Jeremy. I mean, one, two, three, four, four times he finished first in baseball in hits allowed. To me, that tells me that that's not a dominant guy. That's not, yes, he won 25 games one year. He had one, two, three seasons of 20 or more wins. And certainly these guys pitched longer than what in a game than what we're used to now. But four or five times he led the league in hits allowed. And I'm guessing he's in the top 10 or top five in hits allowed in seasons probably eight or nine or ten times. Is that a Hall of Famer? I don't know. I'm going to say this. You know, I'll just bring it back to one person. Um, When you have a guy like Fred McGriff, who has all the numbers in the world to be a Hall of Famer, who did it for such a long period of time at such a high level, both offensively and defensively, and is an ambassador for the game, and writers can't vote him in, the hall's broken. And I, I say that because um, we've we've let other players in, me, we as an industry, we as a, as a voting public, whoever we entails, right, have, have allowed other players in that whether they deserve to be in or not, don't have his numbers, don't have his longevity, don't have his uh, his character and or ambassadorship, you know, post-playing career. So for Fred McGriff not to be in the Hall of Fame tells you the rest of it's busted. That just tells you right there. It's not working. Something's off. Um, you're going to have players now, and, and, and I'll, I'll stop there and I'll say, before this era of voting, this little window we're in of voting, everybody wondered how this era would treat um, the PEDs, right? It, how it would treat that. And we're seeing some selectivity. We're seeing some people who have been admitted to the Hall of Fame because they were liked. And we see some people who are not in the Hall of Fame because they weren't liked. Now, some people who weren't liked have earned the reputation not to be liked. And, you know, if you have some confidence and you're willing to uh, stand up for what you believe in and you do some things that, that uh, you know, that are a little bit ahead of what others may do, some people who don't like you are just not going to like you because of that. Um, and, and some people rubbed, rubbed, you know, some writers and some public the wrong way. But that said, there is no reason why Barry Bonds, who was – a Hall of Famer before all of this stuff went down um, isn't a Hall of Famer. And, and there's no reason why Gary Sheffield isn't a Hall of Famer. And there's no reason, again, back to McGriff. So when you start looking at, you know, the person you brought up, the player you brought up, and you look at some of these guys that we we're just talking about, um, who regardless of the situation that uh, the era that they played in were some of the best to ever put on the uniform, there's no reason why they're not in the Hall. Uh, we, we're, we're, Major League Baseball has a way 
at times of being pretty hypocritical with some of the things that they do, whether that's writers or whether that's scouts or whether that's executives, all of us have a selective part of it. And, and that's, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of get away from, um, I guess, in this industry. But that said, those guys are Hall of Famers. So for the Hall of Fame not to allow, even taking Bonds and, and Sheffield out of it, not to allow Fred McGriff in the, in the Hall, tells me it's broken and it needs to be fixed. What that fixes, I don't know. There's a lot of players out there that are in the Hall of Fame that are less deserving than some of those that aren't. Fred McGriff, 2002 at the age of 38, 30 home runs, more than 100 runs driven in at the age of 38. That's pretty good. And you've never heard his name mentioned at all in PEDs. Like this isn't somebody who is who is ever mentioned as part of that. Four hundred ninety-one home runs. Is that right? Four ninety-one is a career. Four ninety-three. Four ninety-three, and and not seven home runs away, and he's not in the hall. No disrespect to Jeff Bagwell, who was an excellent hitter and a pretty good player, but if he's a Hall of Famer, McGriff's a Hall of Famer. And so when you look at those type of situations, that tells me that this is, is a selective voting process. And to compound that with the analytic analytic era has given us different criteria for evaluating people to get in the hall. And it's almost like, and man, it's really hard to say because you don't want to disrespect anybody who's in there because pinnacle of the sport, like you said, you know, tough to do, uh, one of the greatest players to play regardless of whether or not they're enshrined. Um, but the analytic era has opened things up to give us, in some ways, some different appreciation for what some players did that were overlooked before by traditional metrics. But in lots of ways, it's also given us an excuse to make it easier to get in. And uh, the way you fix this, sadly, for the people that have been voting is you have to have a voting criteria of quality and you allow ex-players and ex-managers and ex-coaches to vote. Um, and you can even allow you know some current players, managers and coaches to vote. But, you know, as I say that, you might get somebody using defensive run saved as a metric to keep Derek Jeter out of the Hall of Fame, too. So I would kind of lean towards more people who have done all that before, been there, done that, that have some perspective. Uh, that, have, that have competed along with the writers because they have perspective, but there's got to be a balance besides just the writers. I think I would weigh it more towards the writers, though. I think because the, the Veterans Committee, no respect, disrespect rather, um, I wonder if the Veterans Committee has a softer spot for the guys they competed against. I wouldn't even bother with today's players because you and I both know today's players – the majority of them, they're not really into the past of baseball. There are, there are certainly some exceptions, but I would, I would argue a lot of players don't – that's not their thing, the past. I'd give Alex Bregman a vote. I would give Mike I said, Trout. I didn't say everybody. Alex Bregman, perfect example. Lance McCullers, another yeah. great example. Right. I'd give Trout a vote. I'd give Verlander a vote. I would give um, – uh, Michael Conforto, a vote. I would give, you know, there's guys all over the league that you that you give a vote to. Um, Lorenzo Cain, I'd give him a vote. I mean, you know, Kristen Yelich, right? I mean, you got to find you can find guys out there who know what they're doing uh, that have studied the game of baseball to get where they are today that are current. Maybe it's the union reps. Maybe that's part of it too. There, there just needs to be a way um, to counteract some of the popularity contests and these ballots that we've seen. Um, I mean, because a lot of these guys are throwing away votes rather than vote for people who deserve to be in. And, and it's certainly not universal. And the writers still need to have their votes because they still cover the game and they see it all from a different lens. But the players, the ex-players, 
uh, the ex-managers, coaches, and scouts need to have a vote as well. Spotswood polls, Negro League. Look him up. Bill James <laughs> called him the Black Tie Cobb. And unfortunately, when Major League Baseball, the Hall of Fame, went back and looked at a lot of um, statistics or uh, did a project to curate or create uh, a better database, yeah. that was past Spotswood Polls Prime. And the fact that that guy is not in the Hall of Fame. I do appreciate, always appreciate the, the players that you find and some of the, and the notes that you find on these guys. Jason, one of the best I've ever seen. I, I can tell you that I wholeheartedly agree and I'm that the Negro leagues for too long have been overlooked, but that's selective. And, and of course now they're recognized and, um, you know, Buckle Neal gets in this year and, and, you know, hopefully with any kind of luck, you know, more, the door will be open for more players to get in that are deserving. So, um, you know, if guys like that aren't in the hall, yeah. I mean, past eras and current eras, it, it's an issue. What bothered me is uh, maybe, gosh, maybe it's going on a decade now. Maybe it was 15 years ago, major league baseball, I think the Hall of Fame, they had a special ballot, right, for, uh, a, I don't want to say a large group of Negro League players, but a, a, a substantial number of Negro League players, and not all got in. And um, when pressed about some of these guys' candidacy, uh, they said it wasn't fair. Well, if you're going to bring these guys' legacies back from the grave, I think you owed it to the families and their supporters to tell, to say why, why, why was this person's credentials not good enough to get in? And um, that's always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, I came from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which has a very rich tradition, Negro League Baseball. Mm -hmm. The Harrisburg Giants were there. They had an amazing outfield, including Oscar Charleston, Fats Jenkins. Oscar Charleston, of course, is in the Hall of Fame, but... Um, anyways, if you look up Spotswood polls and you don't look at the numbers that are on baseball reference, because that was at the end of his career. If you really do a deep dive into what he meant to the game and how he played the game again, I just don't understand how a guy like that is not in the hall of fame. Anyhow, let's move on now to a very interesting name resurfacing. That is Jonathan, Jonathan Singleton, who received a huge contract from the Astros, um, Many would say, listen, that was some good foresight. I mean, here you, you lock in a guy who, who has a lot of potential, and it didn't work out. And the Brewers have signed him. Uh, Jonathan Singleton had been playing, in, he'd been playing in Mexico. He was in 46 games, like a, like a 1,200 OPS, 15 homers. Certainly strikeouts were a big thing for him in the big leagues, but also – uh, let's be honest, he was under subs uh, suspension and basically told the AP in 2014 that he was battling an addiction to marijuana. I, I, I'm sure you're, you know this, Jeremy, but of course the, the Brewers president of baseball operations is David Stearns, who was with the Astros um, when Singleton played there. Low risk, potential high reward, why not? That's, that's my take on it. Um, good for Jonathan, uh, to get, you know, to get a chance, another chance. He's obviously earned it statistically. Um, you know, it sounds like 
whatever addictions or demons he was dealing with, you know, he's be able to get through them. And, and that's always a daily battle for anybody that has them. So uh, he deserves a pat on the back first and foremost, and all the support he can get in his personal life to be, make sure that that continues. Um, you know, David Stearns has done this before with Mark uh, Eric Thames, and he, he pulled, uh, pulled him out of Korea. And we had Eric in Seattle. Uh, Eric had been in Toronto before that. Uh, you know, pulled him back to play some first base after monster numbers and, and you know, uh, give him, uh, sign him to a contract, a big league deal at the time. Um, good, you know, so he's not opposed to going to find players anywhere. Uh, I will say he does rely on his, his veteran scouting staff to do some things. I know they're very involved in the Rule 5 with, you know, uh, you know undervalued assets and, and how to go ahead and mine the lower levels of the minor leagues with guys that are, that are exposed a little bit. So not surprised at all. Um, you know, regarding the contract that Jonathan signed before, that's, a, that's good for Jonathan that he got that. I think that was an irresponsible deal at the time. I think everybody would understand that. I think Jonathan would tell you that, if it, you know, it's an irresponsible deal for the club looking back. Um, and that's not a, a, a anything to do with him. It's just, you know, big league, playing the big leagues is tough, regardless of the era, regardless of how it's going on. This is tough to do. And, and those guys need to have some established numbers and time before you give them a bunch of money. But uh, you know that said, good for him. He's back. He's got a chance to be back on this side and and with the club and hopefully with uh, an executive that has some familiarity. I look at it more as like a roll of the dice, and the Astros lost that one. I, I'm not. I'm I mean, not. Sure. 10 million, I mean, in this day and age, what's ten million dollars to a team? Yeah, but that was what 2012. 14? No, 2000. We signed the deal. It was 2011 or 12. 2012, maybe, right? Uh, it says he signed the deal according to ESPN. Excuse me. According to the AP, he signed it in 2014. 14. Okay. So um, if he's in your system, and I believe you said 2014, he mentioned he was having. You know what? That might not be right. Let me look this up. I think it was 2012. But You know, what you're saying seems to be, uh, seems to be more. Um, I think that that would be correct, but let me look. Go ahead. All right. So if he signs signs a deal in fourteen and then says he has an a, an addiction issue right after that, he's been battling. You have to know that as an organization before you commit a bunch of money to him. If he's especially if he's in your organization, this isn't like an unknown thing that he was hiding, right? Um, if it's two thousand twelve uh, when he signs this deal, that addiction I'm sure had signs of showing up beforehand. And I'm not going to go past that because it's not my business to do so. And he deserve, everybody deserves a new, a new chance on life. And, I, and one of the things that I don't think people get today uh, is a chance to leave the past in the past. And I, and I think Jonathan deserves, like everybody else, to grow and evolve and change and leave the past in the past. So, um, you know, when it comes to, to him, those issues should be behind it. From the Astros standpoint, I still think that contract's irresponsible without him ever seeing a day in the big leagues. I understand it was a roll of the dice, like you're saying. I agree with it. But I don't know why you'd give anybody any real money without seeing him perform at the highest level first. That's just me. It was ja, It was 2014. It was 2014. So if it's 2014, then he has an, he announces he has an addiction or says he has an addiction right after that. The fact that you don't know that in your organization is extremely irresponsible. And that goes back to um, – well, the people that were running the organization at the time and just another one of those lack of human feel situations that they had all the way down to some of the things that happened with breaking codes. So it's just, you know, you have to have some some human feel and how you're doing things and understand some people in the organization. And if all you ever do is um, have your 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 
your attention one direction instead of the whole thing and or some of the stuff we're seeing now, which is, uh, let's say, making moves for shock value. Let's just do that in how you're approaching your organization rather than doing what the best thing is for the club and understanding the players that are there. If that's what you're doing, um, then you're going to miss stuff like that. So, But again, good for Jonathan. Good for him. And I'm, I'm just really glad he's got a chance today in 2021 to step forward into the, into the present, leave the past in the past, and get another shot at Major League Baseball. Time now for a flashback. Jeremy Booth's 2015 report on Dylan Tate. Did you like Dylan Tate? Well, let me read the report first. Well, hold on. Before you read the report, I want to answer if I liked him because I don't want anybody to think this was colored. Okay. Okay. What you tell me? Because I haven't looked at this report literally since I wrote it. And the reason why um, I haven't looked at it is, is, well, two, three reasons. Number one, we weren't taking him anyway. He went like four in the country and we were picking in the 60s. So he was basically a drive-by, we call it a drive-by, drive-by, write him up, respect report, throw him in the hopper, see what happens later. Um, I was not sold at the time um, as to whether or not he was a starter or reliever. And I, I thought he was a reliever, but you have to put him in as a starter. You can't take a guy in the first round. It was every bit of a first round arm. You can't take him in the first round without thinking he's going to start. Four, Kind of, kind of shocked me a little bit, to be honest with you. I thought I was like, but it's, you know, every thirty-one as, as somebody I know uh, who, who who this is his phrase, not mine. Thirty-one flavors like Baskin Robbins. Everybody has a little different way of liking things and doing stuff. And the Rangers thought he was that guy at four. So you try to write that report as nicely and aggressively as you can with respect to his arm. But I thought he was a reliever. Now, also, I have not followed his career. Since then, I know he's bounced around a little bit, but I don't know where he's at now. Last I saw, he was in Baltimore. So that's where I'll stop. Now go ahead. All right, let me get the report. I had it. and uh, But, yes, he's, uh, he's in Baltimore right now, okay. and it hasn't, been, um, it hasn't been a good ride thus far in Baltimore. Uh, when I looked at some of his uh, statistics – um, and his metrics, it's, it's very interesting because you write number two starter in a major league role, power arm. This is the one thing about going live. I got to make sure that I'm, uh, there we go. Let me get back to the report. Number two starter in major league role, power arm, big fastball that plays even better than the velocity with deception in life, slider more than enough to protect it, usable curveball and change to keep hitters honest, control over command, but enough to make hitters protect the zone, can pitch with his fastball, keep hitters conscious on both sides of the plate, needs to build innings and endurance as he is relieved in college, wiry strong, and has the frame to give you middle front of the rotation innings over a long haul. All of that, all of that, I will tell you right now, looking back on it, even seven years later, I would say is true. That's why he went four. The concern was, did you say he relieved in college there? Okay, that's the concern. We talked about that before, making relievers in the starters, right? And so, all right, go on. There you go. No, I, I just – it's funny, though, when you look at his – so this past year with Baltimore, he was – He was 0-6. He pitched in 62 games, 0-6, 49 strikeouts in 67 innings, three saves. You know, he's allowing 8.1 hits per nine innings, and 
his strikeouts have dipped to 6.5 per nine innings. In fact, when you look at most of his per nine innings numbers, they have regressed considerably. 2020, he was pretty good. He had a 3.24 ERA, one and one, but he only pitched 16 innings. But I find it very interesting when you break down where he um, he ranks in, in percentiles. Fastball spin rate, poor, three percentile. He's in the third percentile, I should say. Fastball velocity, he's in the 81st percentile. Exit velocity, 76th percentile. Um, chase rate is kind of in the middle. Very low K percentage, whiff percentage. And um, it appears it's a guy who has a good arm, throws strikes, maybe too many strikes, and isn't fooling guys. Would that yeah, be uh, it's, would that well, it's, be a pretty accurate assessment? It sounds like he was a four-seam guy back in college. He was, you know, well, four, guess what? It's funny you mention that because four-seam fastball right now, in 2021, he threw that just 1% of the time. Almost 2%. He's pretty much a sinker guy now. Well, that's going to affect the spin, right? Because sinkers aren't going to spin as fast that's as four true. That's so true. That's true. So to throw that out. What it sounds like is that he was reinvented a little bit to try to give him something to keep people off the off the four-seam fastball, right? And the ball, he was a heavy four-seam guy in college at UC Santa Barbara. Um, he was fine with that. He was able to sink it a little bit, but it sounds like complete reinventing to go with that slider and keep guys out of, uh, you know, off the uh, – off one or the other to give him something to protect. Um, it it's definitely sounds like a reliever arsenal. It sounds like a swing guy arsenal right now. It underscores the fact that velocity doesn't mean everything because you have to be able to, to uh, protect that velocity, which and I actually had a conversation on Twitter not too long ago with somebody who said, well, you don't need to protect the velocity. You just need no, you have, that's a good example right there of needing to protect the velocity. Dylan Tate has a great arm, always has. So, um, you know, it, it just sounds like he went out in development and didn't work you know, work well, and he's trying to find himself. Um, sometimes that can happen later. Sometimes that happens sooner. That was 2015 draft, so this is 21. So I'm gonna say he's about 27. So he's gonna have he has some more time to figure it out. And certainly Baltimore, um, everybody's had a bad year in Baltimore. Baltimore's had a bad year in Baltimore. So you know he needs to they, they, over there. They got a lot of things to do to um, correct some of the processes that they're having, you know, and they may be closer to doing that than people think. So, you know, look, the fast, the velocity's still there. Um, he's not going to get a lot of chase if he's showing the ball early, if he's not getting guys uh, swinging and missing, their, you know, in the zone or, or conscious in the zone, uncomfortable. They're not going to chase outside of the zone. So he's going to, again, it's a reinventing. We'll see where this goes for him, but he's definitely got a good arm and, and uh, he's got, as long as he's got a uniform, he's got a chance. Your body comparison yeah, I know. That was, one a trip, was a trip into the Wayback Machine. I remember who that one was. Who was it? It was Dave Stewart. No. Almost. Are you kidding? Who did I put in there? No. A similar. Similar. That's there? a good one, too. Another Oakland A. Help Mike Norris. Mike Norris. <laughs> totally different bodies. I think I looked at him once and said Dave Stewart and went to Mike Norris after that. I, I was a, a little kid watching the A's, you know, when I was growing up in the, in, around that clubhouse. And Mike Norris is somebody that I just was infatuated with as a pitcher. It was, it was fun to watch. He had such good stuff, Very sh a much shorter career than he should have had stuff-wise. But, man, he was fun. Yeah, All right, everybody. Movie.
What's that? That was a way back pull. That was six years old, seven years old, pulling that out of my pocket. It was good. So All right. So, everybody, that's our first um, venture, journey into the live podcast space. How do you think it went, Jeremy? It went pretty good. good for this stuff. I'm the, yeah, just, I'm the one that has to I'm the one that has to move the camera. You know, I'm the one that has to set things up. We just need you some just more go. music. We need some music at the front, music in the back. That's all we need. We're good. All right. Well, we'll see how this went. We'll we'll reevaluate. We'll, um... Live is always great, man. You know I'm a fan of live. And, and for people out there that don't um you know, that, that may wonder, Jason and I, we do this kind of, we just go over topics and then we just roll. We don't, there's really no script to, even if we're doing it live from the ballpark in the postseason or, um, you know, even at, at Sports Extra, we just, we just roll with it. There's no, hey, you're going to say this, you're going to say that. It's just a bunch of cues. And and so live is where we do a lot of our stuff. I'm totally comfortable with it. I know Jason is, and uh, I'm, I'm all good. I much prefer this than, than the taped. I'm good with this one right here. I like taped. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, hey, thanks to uh, everybody for retweeting, including the KHOU11 Twitter account. So um, anyhow, uh, I will continue my week off. I don't know Even what that is. We, we, we never take weeks <laughs> off, though. That's the thing, right? We just, we no. just don't do it. So, All right, everybody. Uh, we're going to end this broadcast, and we'll post it on all the normal podcast spots. Yeah, I think we're done. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody.